Welcome to Act and Unwind, an ongoing conversation on a free and virtuous society. I'm your host, Eric Cohn. I want to thank you for listening. I want to ask that if you're listening to us on our website, that you navigate right now to the show notes for this episode, where you're going to find a link to subscribe directly to Act and Unwind at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else where you listen to find podcasts. And if you like this program, please leave us a five-star review at Apple Podcasts so as to help more people find our show. Today, I'm joined by Dan Huger, Acton's librarian and a research associate. And this week, we're joined by a special guest, Sarah Isger. Sarah is a senior editor of The Dispatch and host of the Advisory Opinions Podcast and The Dispatch Podcast, as well as an ABC News contributor. This week, we'll be discussing unintentional, question mark, internet celebrity. But first, we want to start with the crisis in masculinity, also question mark. I wanted to discuss this because I had heard a conversation that Sarah had had with Jonah Goldberg on his podcast a couple weeks ago, after going through a lot of the Trump legal uh, machinations and all that's going on there, got into this interesting conversation about uh, what is going on with men. I think this was also on the heels of the uh, report from the Surgeon General talking about a crisis of loneliness, which I think many of us, if it didn't specifically talk about uh, loneliness being a problem with men, read it as being about uh, a loneliness problem with particularly men more so than women. Um, And I just thought that that conversation was particularly interesting. We'll put a link to that podcast episode in the show notes as well, so people can check out what spurred this conversation. But Sarah, I I wanted to start with you. You'd some I, I, I have so many different things I want to ask you that I kind of just want to say, uh, just go. Um, so <laughs> in in lieu of just asking, like, what is uh, what is the issue with men right now, at least as as you see it? Um, you had some interesting thoughts, I thought, on friendship formation and as well as the the way that that interacts with marriage. And maybe that's a good place to um, uh, to start that, you know, men on one hand are having a more difficult time forming and keeping friendships. Um, you know, I think you'd, you'd brought up the idea of like the Elks Lodge or American Legion and things like that is it's not going to suffice for being the thing around which friendships are formed. And um, for a lot of those people too, there was you had the common bonds of having gone to war together. Even if you didn't serve in the same unit, you fought in the same war. And as the nature of the military has changed from world war two forward, the nature of those kinds of uh, groups of men have uh, have changed in those kinds of clubs, but then also making the point that the kind of lack of friendship formation you're seeing outside of marriage, more men are kind of looking for everything and all things from their spouse. So maybe we start there and then we just see where we go. Yeah. I mean, just for some table setting, I think I'm a pretty like wackadoo feminist and perhaps this conversation is interesting to me because I think (laughs) feminism has to have a worthy adversary in some sense. (laughs) And instead, um, I feel like the men are crumbling here, right? Women are 60% of the college grads. They're taking over, um, you know, a lot more industries at the bottom. Now you're still seeing this as a huge lagging indicator because of course, um, if you're looking at CEOs or C-suite executives, it is still, of course, dominated by men. And, um, you know, I have my my things that I use to gauge how feminism is doing. The ambient temperature of offices is uh, still far too cold 
clearly dictated by men in charge. Um, when I walk back to coach on an airplane and look at the first class passengers, they are still all men usually, uh, or certainly not 50, 50. Um, so I think there are a lot of big reasons that we're seeing a crisis in masculinity. Um, I think because the role that we need men to play in society has changed really dramatically, very quickly, you know, you go back to, um, you know, way back, men are literally protecting their families from lions. Like, you know, you needed, or, or other marauding tribes, like they are physical protection for, um, women and children. But even like, let's go to modern history here. Um, uh, you know, the industrial age is all about physical strength. Uh, even sort of factory widget stuff. Now we're about to see women sort of moving into that sphere, especially as uh, World War One and World War Two are going to take a lot of men out of the ability to do that work. And so now we're going to have women moving into the workforce. But of course, it's because the men were back to doing sort of the, you know, physical saving stuff. Um, and, you know, we've known like brain chemistry wise and any number of other things, chess, serial killers, whatever it might be that like men are always on the ends, the tails of the bell curve on both sides. And women are usually in the, the middle of the bell curve. Okay. So, uh, fast forward to now in this knowledge economy, all of those things where, yep, you have to kind of accept the men on the bad tail of the bell curve, but we get all the men on the front end of the bell curve, that front end of the bell curve stuff for these men is no longer nearly as valued. Instead, a lot of female attributes are valid, valued in the knowledge economy. If you look at schools, um, sitting still, paying attention, um, listening to instructions, <laughs> all things that I don't excel at. So again, we're going to have like all these generalizations about men and women, many of which not only do I know don't apply to all men and all women, they don't even apply to me. Like, so I was not particularly good at any of those things in school. Um, but when you have schools predominated by female teachers, it's not that in a knowledge economy that sort of rewards things that women are going to be better at. Um, it's not surprising then that you're going to end up with like a school environment that I think is less geared towards men. That's going to carry through why a lot of them aren't going to college, et cetera. And then, yeah, you get to marriage and <laughs> marriage used to be a economic contract, a business deal. You know, you were forming basically your own corporation to raise children and create prosperity for them uh, to make it way over simplistic. It was not, um, it was about affection. I mean, you know, I'm not, I'm not trying to bind this notion that of, you know, purely arranged marriages and stuff like that. Plenty of marriages were love marriages of a sort, but not the kind of love we talk about now. Uh, and so today when you've stripped away a lot of the corporate form of marriage <laughs> and the purpose of that, because women are working, supporting themselves, lots of single moms out there, you know, doing fine. Um, marriage then becomes a lot more focused on the love part and the, I can get everything from my spouse part. I think that actually can cut both ways. I don't think it's unique to the male side of the marriage, but women, I think have a much easier time at any point in their lives saying like, Oh, I'm not getting what I need from this relationship. I can now build all sorts of structures and moats and, you know, 
things around me um, to fill some of those, what will become loneliness uh, traps. And men are sort of left holding this marriage bag of, uh, where they never used to get all of their uh, you know, intellectual, emotional needs from their spouse. Um, I think it's very tough now. And, you know, you see that in even no-fault divorce trend lines, right? No-fault divorce was poo-pooed at the time, this idea that all these men would leave their wives for their secretaries. That's not what happened. It turns out all the wives are leaving the men because they suck. (laughs) Um, They don't need them. So punchline, some of the crisis in masculinity to me is a need for the answer of why we need men. And I'm not sure that answer is very clear anymore the way that it was 80 years ago, 200 years ago, 500 years ago, when it would have been obvious to anyone you asked that to. Um, we literally don't even need your you for your sperm. Like we can just store that in a freezer. So how do we begin to answer a question like that? I mean, we we are seeing dramatic changes, not just in the economy and in the makeup of uh, of work life and all of that. And uh, we're seeing kind of these really dramatic changes in expectations around gender roles and and what men and women are supposed to do. So if it hasn't going, if it isn't going to be what these traditional gender roles have been for eons, how do we even begin to answer a question like that? I mean, it's not like we have a whole lot of experience there to lot rely back on, which is why, and I, I do want to get into this too, is like I there are a lot of different reactions to all of this, but two of them that stick out in my mind, again, probably because my um, thank you, Elon Musk. The algorithm on uh, X or Twitter or whatever we're calling it now is attuned to these, given the kind of work that we do at the Acton Institute. But I see these um, very kind of trad life uh, promoters, um, both on the male and the female side. Emily Zanotti, who's contributing editor uh, for us, kind of calls it uh, like trad wife cosplay. Um, as opposed to people who are actually kind of living that lifestyle, which I think Emily comes a lot closer to than a lot of the people who are doing it for show. But on the other side of it, you also have the Andrew Tates of the world um, who are, you know, it it reminds me of, um, I cannot remember the first time I heard this said, but about the immigration issue, that if responsible politicians aren't going to deal with it, irresponsible people are going to show up and they're going to take over the issue. And it seems to me that that explains at least part of the Andrew Tate phenomenon is that because there haven't been responsible people, and you can throw a lot of blame around on that from accusations of toxic masculinity aimed at things that seem completely just anodyne and reasonable, uh, because there hasn't been a reasonable attempt to deal with these questions, unreasonable, unreasonable people show up and you know, given the what we know about the makeup of men, there's a, an appeal there. There's a desire to say that you have a purpose and this is what the purpose is. And it could be something really dark and it could be something really awful. And there are plenty of examples throughout history of all of that. So what do you make of some of these reactions? And the basic first question I asked, how do we begin answering this if we don't really have a whole lot historically to rely on? Yeah, I mean, in some ways, the um, how do we answer this when we don't have a lot historically to rely on could apply to so many things in our lives right now, like raising kids with social media we're doing something our parents' generation never had to do. And in some ways, 
these last maybe three generations, especially of Americans, um, as parents, uh, are in totally unique boats because in the past, yeah, things changed over time, but they changed really slowly for the most part. 80, 90% of what you were doing looked the same as your parents. And now as parents, like zero percent, ten percent—it's really low in terms of sort of the daily as challenges we are, you face. As we are talking, I'm getting a text from my son who wants to uh, me to approve more time for him on Roblox. Right, <laughs> so it's like it is entirely different universe. Yeah, um, and you can't fall back on how you were raised in a lot of ways, which is part of the challenge. Uh, and so I think some of that applies here. A lot of it applies here as well, because I don't have a good answer to how you answer the question, what are men for right now? Um, I'm I'm a mother of boys and I'm a big believer in men, <laughs> but uh, clearly we have a problem. And I love your explanation of the, if responsible people won't do it, irresponsible people will, because that's exactly what you're seeing with some of this, like, I don't even know what to call actual toxic masculinity <laughs> of, um, this idea that like, there may not be a place for this in society anymore, but we will do it times a million the way we think that it used to be based somewhere between video games and like fantasy books. And they'll need us then that's not how it works. You don't sort of do a thing and then hope society comes to need that thing. Um, and in the meantime, the problems get worse because of that, not better because women then rely less and less on men for those things that they are no longer reliable for. Uh, and you certainly see that in the marriage numbers in child rearing numbers. That's not good. You know, when I say like, what are men good for? I, I hope it goes without saying like, I think they're pretty good for child rearing. I think it's pretty important, <laughs> but they got to be there and they have to, um, have a purpose in the family. They can't just be there. And so the purpose problem is huge. Um, men need a purpose. Women, I think, and again, we're doing huge generalizations here. Women find purpose very differently than men do. And I'm curious if you have thoughts on um, why that is from your perspective, that men's purpose seems like it's derived far more externally than women's purpose. I mean, you're a dad. Um, maybe you would say, no, my purpose is internal to the family unit. And that's where I derive my sense of purpose. But it feels like overall the like male brain likes external purpose. I mean, I think it's both. Um, and I, I think for men, it's probably going to have to be a healthy combination of both because there, at least there is that orientation towards kind of the world that we were describing where uh, with men as the breadwinners, my wife works as well, um, works outside of the home to be, uh, to be clear, although she does work from home. So that gets all the more complicated to communicate. Um, family is part of it but you know my career is uh, is a huge part of it as well um you know i i don't think that i've particularly had i don't feel when i read these reports about men having problems forming friendships uh that i i don't see myself in that as much um so maybe in this case like i'm not a good person to kind of be detailing these problems because i don't feel uh some of those same problems but i you know i definitely know of people uh 
out there who do identify with that. So, you know, I, I, I think we, we derive meaning from a whole bunch of different places. Um, and to like to over-focus on one element of it, if you're just obsessed with your career, then you're going to be a bad husband, you're going to be a bad father, um, you're going to be a bad friend. You have to figure out a way to balance all of these things. I think that's one of the tricks of life. And I don't know if we're perhaps just getting worse at figuring out how to balance these things. If I, I wonder, going back to the social media point, and I, I do want to get Dan in here as well, um, and to the extent to which maybe we're just kind of overstimulated, there's just so much going on right now um, that, you know, my own foibles, I, I have to force myself to put down the phone and stop doom scrolling Twitter, uh, which is not a healthy thing to do. But it's like it's the kind of thing that you have to force yourself to do. Um, but, you know, I certainly find the times to do that. My daughter dances. My son plays hockey. There's, you know, th there, there are things that they're doing that I will engage with as well. Um, but it's, it is that different world where there just seems to be so much more coming at us and figuring out the right way to balance all of these different things, I think it's become much more difficult, but I, I want to get Dan in here for his thoughts. You see, I, I am skeptical of this crisis of masculinity sort of narrative. Good. And we see I want to hear it. We see yeah. this, I mean, we see this in a lot of places. <laughs> there are, you know, there are editorials all of the time. And I'm not skeptical of it because I think that men aren't in crisis. I'm skeptical of it because if you look at, let's say, the beginning of the Iliad, Achilles' rage is sort of a crisis of masculinity. In fact, what is he? Uh, he's stripped of the woman he takes in battle by another man is degraded and humiliated. And the rest of the narrative is playing out from that. If you look at Genesis one through three, Adam's duties, what happens in the garden, all of that failure to accept responsibility, that's a crisis of, yeah, you could, you could frame that as a crisis of masculinity. If you look at the beginning of the Bhagavad Gita, when Arjun despairs of the battle at Kuruksetra and, and says that he will not fight, and then Lord Krishna has to communicate both his, you know, dharma in the world and his sort of eternal dharma to him. This is a crisis of masculinity um, and can be framed that. I never really thought in these categories growing up as a young man. And maybe that's because I had a normal childhood with normal father and normal uncles and normal neighborhood friends and all of that stuff. And maybe that's a sort of luxury. But, you know, I went, you know, I was in Boy Scouts and the rest of it. Maybe that's a luxury, but when I was turned up, uh, it was in college taking a critical theory class, and we're reading, you know, Julia Kristeva and all of this feminist theory. And I'm in a used bookstore, and I see a book on the shelf called uh, The Man in Me, Visions of the Male Experience. And I'm like, oh, this is, like, super interesting. So I pick it up. I do not recommend you read this book to children. There's a lot of it that's not child-appropriate. There's a lot of it that's not adult-appropriate because it's all these sort of great male thinkers <laughs> – struggling through their maleness in profoundly different ways. There's an essay on, uh, I think it's a, I'm not sure if it's a diary entry or if it was a fully developed short story of Kafka's about being a bachelor his whole life and him eventually coming to the conclusion that he's not going to have a wife and he's not going to have children. And he's not going to have a family and renting smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller rooms until he buys his own coffin. And it's like, is that a crisis in masculinity? Probably. It sounds like a crisis in masculinity to me. 
But and this is where I think like all of these problems and the problems of gender relations in general are contextual. Uh, to bring us back to the man in me, Bob Dylan in The Man in Me opens how? With the man in me will do nearly any task. And as for compensation, there is little he would ask. It takes a woman like you to get through to the man in me. So there's a sense in which Dylan doesn't even know his own masculinity without not women writ large, not women in society, but this particular woman who brings out this particular man in him. And, you know, there's a sense in which, you know, I have uh, masculine needs as, you know, I'm recently engaged, you know, for my fiance, yes. For my sister, yes. In relation to my mother, yes. These are not all the same, thank the Lord. And, you know, they're contextually determined. And there's a world in which I am born and I don't have a sister and instead I have a brother. And that is a male-female relationship that I would never have. That doesn't make me less of a man to not have a sister, to not have a spouse, to not have... Because, you know, as, as Whitman would say, men are large and contain multitudes. And I think we see that. We see these perennial crises. Um, and I don't think there's anything really new about our challenges today other than the fact that we have disciplines like sociology in which to examine them and to take a look at these aggregates. Um, and I think it's a mistake when you talk about, you know, gender relations and these sorts of contextual embedded things in these sort of statistical aggregates. I think you get a distorted picture. I also think you have to factor in the rise of and changes through feminism in the last 70 years as well. You know, we've um, sort of depends on who you ask, whether we're in third or fourth wave feminism. And I love Christine Emba's book on this. Um, <laughs> rethinking sex, a provocation. It's fantastic as you want to think about where feminism is right now, because obviously the two are, are moving in tandem. And, you know, part of her thesis, which I think is so, well, I'll add my own part and then I'll get to hers, which is um, when feminism sort of first starts, there's not a whole lot to do except for mimic men. Um, and, you can see this in movies like Fatal Attraction's a great choice. The bad guy in Fatal Attraction is Glenn Close, who dresses like a man. She has kind of manly features and jawbone. Um, and she's mimicking male behavior in a lot of ways. And obviously she's, you know, she's our villain who's boiling bunnies um, and seen as sort of the anti-female. She is not feminine. But in some ways, that's like the if you want to see this like a metaphor for feminism, feminism is boiling your bunny by acting like a man. Uh, so you're gonna move through the pantsuits era of feminism and women trying to mimic male behavior in boardrooms or be like aggressive like men. And it's gonna work to a limited extent. I mean, it we owe we as women owe a lot to those women who did that because they're opening the door even a little bit for sort of that next wave of women to come in, which I would argue um, then is going to ask, well, wait, I don't want to act like a man. I'll never be as good at being a man as a man will be. Instead, I wonder whether I can 
be use the feminine qualities that they don't have to actually beat them at their own game. And so you're going to see women dress in more feminine ways, um, and use their EQ, et cetera, to try to, to win in those settings. Now, Christine Emba's point is when it comes to sex, for instance, I don't know how much of a family podcast this is. So I'll try to keep it PG, PG 13 ish. Um, that women are still trying to mimic men that they're told by society that the way to be a liberated woman is to have, you know, purposeless string free sex. And of course our brains are wired pretty differently. Men. And again, I'm going to keep saying this, not all men, but generally speaking, men can get a lot more out of pointless sex, you know, one night stands, um, you don't know her name type sex, then women are going to be able to get out of that type of sex. And so then you have um, women in this age of sort of pornography and online dating and everything else struggling to find meaningful sexual relationships. Uh, And Christine Emba's point is um, maybe that's because women brains are actually more wired towards what she's going to describe herself as um, a love not necessarily marriage level love before you can have sex. She's not for abstinence or anything like that, but a love in terms of wishing good toward the other. You can't do that if you don't know her name, you know, if you just met him at a bar that night. Um, But over time, if you're actually wishing good toward the other, both in a relationship setting or in a sexual setting, like that's going to have a much more satisfying sexual relationship. Why do I mention all this? Because again, feminism is evolving at the same time that I think, masculinity isn't asking a lot of questions. It's almost just reacting to feminism. And so I think your point about there's of course always been masculinity crises. Um, yes. And they were talking about it and grappling with it, but in a context where it wasn't, um, you know, there wasn't a feminist movement for Achilles to be acting in reaction to And I think that might be part of the crisis right now is that women have sort of been ahead of the game thinking through this and caring a lot more about it. How much of, I'm curious for both of your reactions to this, how much of the problem do you think? And I, uh, you mentioned social media earlier, Sarah, and my reaction to, you know, I, I work in marketing, particularly digital marketing and, I did a lot of community building online and I see both the benefits and the problems that that come from that those kinds of communities. They can be good for if they're defined for one single purpose, but when people are looking for a broader sense of meaning and community, like you need actual flesh and blood human beings that you know. There's the the Dunbar's number problem really starts coming up when you're in a Facebook group with 50,000 people. You can't possibly know all of them even if you share a, a single interest. I'm wondering how much of the problem is these crises of masculinity, as Dan detailed, have always existed, but it's complicated by the internet, as many things are complicated by the internet. And I I, I think of, you know, back at um, where I worked previously, I remember making an observation about, uh, I hate using the term wokeness, but we will again for the point of people generally understanding what we're talking about there. Um, that this you had this kind of civic religion that was coming into being with uh, without forgiveness. 
Um, and then a friend of mine added, but with perpetual atonement. And <laughs> I think a lot of that is enforced by the, the internet nature of it, where if you have, let's say if you have bad thoughts, we all have, you know, things across our brain that we, you know, aren't proud that we thought of. Um, and you say you start writing that down, uh, down a rabbit hole that is not a good idea, or is even the example that I used at the time, you say somebody says something that is, you know, um, we can say racist or at least racially insensitive. If you did that amongst a group of friends that you know personally in a meaningful way, you can pull that person aside and you can say, hey, dude, that really wasn't cool. But when it's the communication is happening online, you get two different reactions simultaneously. You get one group of people that wants to excommunicate you from society forever as a result of it. And you get another group of people that say, no, you're right. Continue down that road. Um, so how much of this do you think is complicated or at least the way that we're you know, defining this as being uh, a new problem or a bigger problem than it traditionally has been? is because of that broadening and anonymizing nature of the internet that has changed some interpersonal relationships. If we are to believe that people are having a harder time, particularly men making friends, um, finding semi-anonymous or anonymous people that share a similar interest with you online that don't have your best interests in mind and will can encourage you to be and do some terrible things. They don't How even much know your this, interests. They don't, they don't even, know you. Well, they only know what you what you tell them. Yeah. yeah. Um, how much can of you this add is in just, an ex yeah. add in edge lording to that? Can and and explain it to your listeners, I guess. But like edge lording to me is like some of this really baffling male behavior seems to happen obviously on the younger end of the male spectrum, but not entirely. Um, so can you do do some edge lording? Explain. Yeah, I, I would. Um, <laughs> You put me on spot for a definition. Uh, I'm now I feel like I've got a fail at giving it, but it's this it's this online behavior that will embrace these really radical and provocative things. So like you know, we've seen some of these stories. We talked about um, one of them uh, two weeks ago, which was our last episode. Apologies to listeners that we weren't here last week. Um, of some of these conservative influencers, new right conservative influencers who talk about things like eugenics or who make. Um, these memes that, uh, you know, videos for political campaigns that involve Nazi symbology. Um, it's th these kinds of just crazy radical things. It's almost like, you know, it, it is LARPing, I think, in a way, because I don't, I'm not persuaded at all that most of these people actually believe and or understand a whole lot of the things that they're doing. I think they're being provocative for the sake of being provocative to draw a lot of attention, to annoy and piss off the right people. And it, but it is entirely internet behavior and it would be very bizarre to see it in the real world. I mean, like we've, anybody who doom scrolls Twitter, which you shouldn't do, um, sees those kinds of people who say things that are racist, awful, provocative for the purpose of doing it. But we don't see that in real life very often. And it, it's a, a lot of these moral panics, I think, are trying to chase down these, you know, people who misspoke or said something that was just a little bit off and then trying to make it out as if they are, uh, you know, the same kind of edgelord person that you see on the internet. I, I hope that was a sufficient explanation. No, I think so. What I find fascinating um, from both sides of the woke edgelording uh, spectrum 
for the most part, the edgelord stories, at least that I'm hearing, are people who already felt rejected for some reason, men, men who already felt rejected for some reason, finding a tribe. And in that tribe, the language and the reward system is based on this edgelording, whether it's Nazism or whatever else they're edgelording about. And I'm not using that word right because I'm not a teenage boy. Um, but there is something, of course, in your brain, like let's say you do one thing wrong or you're not popular or the girls don't want to go out with you, whatever the thing is. And now you've got two choices. You can run into the arms of the people who have rejected you and try to get them to accept you. Or you can run into the arms of the people who say you did nothing wrong. That's what made me think of it from your previous comment. You did nothing wrong. Do more of that. You're the real hero of this story. Yes, most people run into the arms of those willing to embrace them, not those who are going to hit them and whack them. Um, and we've seen that even with older, more well-known people, it can happen very slowly or very quickly. But like they tweet something they shouldn't tweet. And instead of in a previous non-social media era, you know, you sort of like, I didn't mean that. That's not who I am. My bad. And maybe you spend a few months in the wilderness and like it all works out. Um, now they end up just moving further and further and further into that group of people who are willing to embrace them. And I think it's, a, I mean, we've moved on from pure masculinity stuff now, but it's a really bad and yet totally natural human reaction. Um, if there's going to be these people who are like, no, keep doing it. So I think, I think the challenge with this is, what we have is a world in which all of this is more visible to people who aren't in the thralls of it than before. You know, it used mm -hmm. to be you signed up for that gentleman's newsletter because you thought he was in, had intriguing ideas and it was delivered to you by the post office and your neighbors didn't see you reading that crackpot newsletter. You read that crackpot newsletter in the comfort of your own home. You would occasionally let crackpot things slip out in conversation, but, you know, people didn't see the degree to which you had bought into it. If you live And a lot of people couldn't even find the crackpot newsletter. Yeah. And a lot of people wouldn't even know. And now, on the one hand, you have people that go down these sort of dark paths that Sarah's outlined. On the other hand, you have these people that are trying to elevate these dark paths to a position of prominence in which they should not be. And this is mainly, let's say, you know, Andrew Tate is an excellent example. Andrew Tate is someone that the, <clears throat> really, it's, it's even beyond the American press. Um, news media got very interested in Andrew Tate at all at the same time. Uh, because he says these horrific, edgelordy, provocative things. And then we're all of a sudden we're talking about the crisis of masculinity in light of this YouTuber who at this point, I think that probably half of his views are people who are viewing his material to write profiles on how terrible Andrew Tate is. And you have this stuff that gets elevated. It's more visible than ever. Part of it is, is we have, you know, civilization creates its discontent, its own discontents. And we have these people, we have a duty to these people to reach out to these people, to express solidarity, to try to bring them back into the community and normal community norms. But 
um, these folks that reject those sort of norms, that proudly edgelord about it, are more visible than they ever have been before. I don't think this means necessarily that there are more of them than ever before, but the internet certainly amplifies them. And it also amplifies the people who are concerned about these things more. And it provokes ever shriller reactions. And you get this, you know, I have talked about, you know, this piece, The Internet of Beefs, numerous, numerous times uh, on this podcast before. This is what social media is designed to do, is to amplify these contentious voices. And um, I don't think you get an accurate picture. You know, is there a lonely teenage boy out there who finds solace in the streamings of Andrew Tate? Yes. Is there a lonely teenage boy who watches a lot of Andrew Tate's stuff, jokes about it with his friends, but deep in his heart knows that this isn't really who he wants to be, but he's part of it. But, you know, he's having fun. He's edgelording. Those people still exist. That Those people absolutely exist, too. Um, but I don't think I don't think that we can that we should extrapolate from that. A, and Sarah's talked about this crisis of masculinity in broader terms than this. And there are, you know, labor force participation shifts, all these sorts of things, uh, differences in marriage norms, marriage rates, these sorts of things. All of those, I think, are more serious conversations to have. But the idea that crackpots are finding an audience and that technology has in ways allowed them to leverage that in more ways than ever before. But, you know, there's a non-zero number of crackpots, uh, even in the good old days. Um, you just found them at the crazy occult bookstore or, you know, the local John Birch Society bookstore or all these other things that, you know, don't exist anymore because of the internet, because all of that oxygen has been sucked up by that. And that's just a much more efficient means of transmitting ideas for both good and for ill. Okay. But what happens? You're right. The edgelording thing is sort of its own little cul-de-sac to go down and we've gone down it. We can return to the main road now. Uh, what happens then? I guess I want to divide the crisis of masculinity from sort of Current older men, the opioid crisis, suicide rates, um, those problems, which I, I, I'm not dismissing them as being really important, but I think they're a different problem than the one about women's workforce participation, the 60% of college graduates, this wave that's coming, and we don't know what's going to happen because of that. How are we supposed to think about this generation of men, which you're right, some small percentage are edgelording, but the vast majority are out there doing the same they ever did. But we have all these statistics saying there's like really bad things on the horizon for them or meaningless things on the horizon for them. Uh, you see, I, I think, you know, I mean, then you need, you know, in the struggle against meaningless, meaning is always helpful. Um, and, you know, I, I come from, you know, a religious tradition that says, you know, that the kingdom of God is within you, um, and that you find meaning in service to others and service to God. And, uh, that is, you know, a message that has never been universally popular. Um, people try down cul-de-sacs to find meaning in all sorts of ways that, you know, are, 
you know, would uh, take you further away from that. Some of those ways over the years have been more socially acceptable than others. There have always been both more socially acceptable and less socially acceptable uh, versions of, of, of false meaning. And, you know, I think, you know, you can't, while, while we, can, we might be able to see the problem in aggregates, I don't think we can aggregate a solution. Um, meaning is something that comes to individuals in very individual ways through a myriad of means. Um, so for some, it comes through spiritual teachers, through some, it comes through reading, through some, it comes in, you know, participation in church, synagogue, mosque, you know, all those sorts of things. For some people, it comes, you know, like a thief of the night when they least expect it and in their least expectant ways. Um, so I don't think, I think, you know, the idea that you're going to, let's say, restructure the economy in a certain way or raise certain tariff rates above this, and then, you know, all of a sudden people are going to be able to get manufacturing jobs. By the way, if you look anywhere, there are high paying manufacturing jobs available today, starting at excellent rages. We have a great labor market in America, if you are looking for work. And I think that's indicative that, you know, we've seen those shifts, very profound shifts in the labor market over the past couple of years, but it doesn't seem like it's about that. It doesn't seem, you know, folks are having less and less sex. Like, we worry about these questions of, you know, uh, these material questions of like getting laid and getting paid to uh, be a little coarse about it. But the reality of it is, is these seem disconnected in some interesting ways from the data um, between those things in meaning. Um, and oh, I, I have think a whole that's... album side on my concern that the kids aren't having sex these days. Yeah. It's a really, I, I, I... really weird phenomenon that not enough people are talking about because like, oh, well, there's less teen pregnancy. There's less abortion. So we don't need to worry about it. Like, no, 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 no. They're not not having sex because they've really thought it through and think that it'd be wiser to wait until later. They're not having sex because they don't, they're not interested. We, I had done an interview with, uh, and we'll put a link to this podcast episode in the show notes as well with Yuval Levin. I think it was maybe about a year ago because he'd written this really interesting piece, probably um, uh, pinging off of the same uh, information that you were just talking about there, Sarah, where you know, <clears throat> we were looking at Basically, he was he was giving the dark clouds to the silver linings um, where <laughs> you you've got you know lower rates of teen pregnancy. You have a decline in the abortion rate, um, things that conservatives would celebrate as being good. Uh, but the dark cloud to it is it's not happening, as you said, because of some kind of rational thought and to think that, you know, uh, waiting until marriage is a better thing to do. It's because people aren't interested. I thought one of the more interesting and telling uh, examples that he gave in there is if you go back to the 1980s, um, what was the recreational drug of choice associated with the culture of the 1980s? It was cocaine, which Definitely. is a drug. It's a stimulant. It's something that makes you want to go faster. It makes you more inclined to take risks. Um, it makes you reckless. It makes you go out and do things. Now, look, I am not here saying that it was a good thing that nope. people Eric were is abusing pro cocaine. Yes, that's very what, pro, that's pro, pro cocaine. That is my uh, that is my role in this podcast. I'm the pro cocaine person. Yeah. Um, but at least what it 
showed there was this desire to get out there to do more, to do it faster, even if it was reckless. And then you look into the 2000s and you see what is the drug of choice and it's opiates. And it's something that causes people to want to drop out of society that doesn't make them want to go, that doesn't make them want to do things, that doesn't make them take risks, which is indicative of a problem. It is part of the problem itself, but it is an indication of, I think, the underlying inclinations of people that they're not looking for something irresponsible to help them get out and do more. They're looking for something irresponsible to check them out of society. And this is where I think you come back to Dan's point about meeting um, and that you, you, you have to kind of find these things on your own. You can't aggregate a solution to it. And the extent we were talking about the internet portion of it, and, and maybe this is a point where we can pivot to, because I think it actually can connect in some way to the other topic I wanted to talk about, is that we just haven't quite figured out, we forget how young the internet is, and we forget how young social media is, and we haven't quite figured out how to live with it yet. You know, be, because we are living our individual lives, and, you know, I can remember, um, you know, in, in one of those internet age being Methuselah kind of things. Like my first social media account was on Friendster. Like I even predated MySpace, um, which seems like a long time ago, but that was like 2004. Um, these things have not been around very long. And I think we're still figuring out how to live with them. And perhaps I seem just kind of doe-eyed and overly optimistic. I think we will figure out ways to live with them. It just, it takes more time than especially an internet culture is allowing us because we expect, because if I have a problem, like, you know, I, I needed to fix the drawer of the chest of drawers in my daughter's room yesterday. And I'm able to Google a solution to that and watch a YouTube video and I can get an answer to it instantaneously. And the problems that the internet, if it doesn't create, it exacerbates. We can't Google a solution to that. Like we're not going to find the instantaneous solution online to the online problem. We're only going to figure out how to work through it and live with it over time, which is unsatisfying to people with you know a limited lifespan. But when you think in terms of generations, in terms of millennia, yeah, we've always had these changes in society. And we've just had to figure out how to live through over the course of time. And that's a not very satisfying answer to somebody with a limited lifespan. But from the point of view of a society or of civilization, it just kind of is the way that it is. Maybe we transition here real quick for the last few minutes of this show, because I want to bring up uh, two very online things that caught my attention. Um, in fact, I think, Sarah, one of them was your, um, uh, was it worth your time on the Dispatch podcast. These two new internet celebrities, one of them is this young man, Oliver Anthony, who uh, had this very all of a sudden hit song called Rich Men North of Richmond um, that became, you know, we, we've had so many pixels already spilled on think pieces about this one song from this guy from, I, I think, um, uh, was it North Carolina? Uh, and you also had this other episode that I thought was interesting uh, because it was one that everybody noticed and everybody, I think, who was who is online at all participated in in some way, which was this woman on an American Airlines flight who uh, stormed off the plane saying that, you know, won't use the language, but that person back there that she was sitting next to wasn't real. 
And I've noticed over the last couple of days, we now know who she is. One, I, I just want to say that I don't like this in general. There was this, there's always this immediate desire to figure out who these people are. Um, and I don't think that there's much of a purpose to all of that. Like, you know, I'm I, I'm hesitating to even say her name because uh, this is a person who we know of because of possibly her worst moment that happened in public. But because of the internet and because everybody has a camera and a video recorder on their phone now, everybody's worst public moment can live forever in a way that if you knew somebody who was on that plane and they told you, yeah, this woman got up and said some crazy stuff and then got off the plane, you probably wouldn't think about it again. But it becomes a meme and it lives forever. And what I found interesting is that, you know, she's she now has a Twitter account and she's a marketing executive. And it kind of looks like she's making a play for status and celebrity based on this incident that I'm not so cynical as to suggest that I think she did it on purpose, but it's the kind of, do you just go ahead and do you take advantage of these kinds of things that, that happen to you? So is, is, I, I don't know that I have a question there other than to say that I'm just kind of fascinated by this unintentional question mark, internet celebrity culture, these people who, rather than going out like we were talking about before and seeking an audience, maybe these people were doing that, but they seem to have accidentally found an audience and well, now they're some kind of a celebrity and they're going to deal with that and try to profit off of it. It seems. On the one hand, nothing new about accidental celebrity culture, certainly, but on the other hand, the consequences are just so much larger now. I feel like in a lot of ways, which is so weird because at the same time that these consequences can be so big for so few people, Society, on the other hand, has really, and I mean American society here, has really uh, tried to purge shame culture in any number of other ways. You know, everyone is supposed to sort of accept everyone for who they are, um, which has had some, I think, unintended consequences as well. If you don't have, if you can't have shame around anything, like, what is society really doing here? How is it inculcating any of its um, values? And so instead, we pick out random people and you know, put their heads on spikes. It's really, really weird. And as someone who works in communication or used to, um, I compare it to all of these little rocks that hit our atmosphere every day. There's like millions of them and most of them just burn up. But occasionally one, you know, or bounce off. And occasionally one will make it through at the exact right angle that you have to not burn up and it hits the ground. And you know, that's an asteroid. Like that's what happens with this culture. It's not based on sort of any moral hazard. It's not based on the person did the thing the most wrong. I mean, like the woman on the airplane, I don't even, she didn't do anything wrong. No one's accusing her of anything. Um, and so she becomes a celebrity for no discernible reason. Maybe it's a slow news day. Maybe the tweet really hit someone as funny or whatever it was. We can also, I think, draw it back to the masculinity problems, too, because there was like there's this weird Internet culture of all kinds of men who seem to want to propose to her immediately, which, again, strikes me as just bizarre. But it was there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I think it's a very bad habit that we've learned from a lack of shame culture. I think the two are connected somehow. I haven't like fully worked out how. So. There's a great, there's another, uh, the other podcast. It's very different from 
Acton's podcast uh, called The Legal Academy, in which the host uh, interviews various people in law. And there's a great interview with Eric Posner in which uh, Posner gets asked about what does he think about law students getting on social media and doing these sorts of things. And he basically says he thinks it's a terrible mistake. And he thinks it's because people genuinely hurt their reputations um, and they don't realize they're doing it. Um, there is a very distorting, uh, there's sort of a reality distortion field in social media. And it's designed to do this. It's designed to make you, I think Posner uses the phrase that, you know, it's designed to make you think the world is waiting for your thoughts. Um, this woman who is trying to capitalize off of this weird thing, uh, you know, the reality of it is, is, you know, I don't know if she was a marketing executive before or after, but the reality of it is in six months, people will hazily remember this thing. Um, this is not something you make a career off of. This is, you are an odd curiosity for the day. This gentleman who wrote this song, I still haven't heard this song. I've seen his picture because there have been a thousand and one think pieces about this song. This is a guy who wrote a song. There are people who write songs every day, <laughs> many of them. There are more wonderful, amazing, life-transforming songs written than I will ever be able to hear, that I will love and the rest of it. And the idea that, you know, <clears throat> you crest this wave and, you know, you might be able to sell, you know, a lot of downloads. Oh, and he has. He's sold a staggering amount of downloads, not only of this particular song, but other songs in his catalog. The question is going to be six months later, will he have a career? I mean, he had a career before. He'll have some sort of career. But is this sort of the life-transforming sort of shot that one would get in a previous year by getting Eggman Man to put you up on Star Search? Maybe. But there are a lot of people who got on Star Search back in the day who didn't break through. Um, and I think this is ever-increasing shortness. There are ever more people online. Only about half of India has smartphones now. The other half is going to get them in the next 40 years. And there will be another 500 million folks in India alone vying for viral videos. And you know what? Just like the lottery, some people win. But the logic that, you know, in order to win, you've got to play is still a sort of terrible, insidious logic that, uh, you know, you see too many people buy into. They think that this is going to make a career. They think that this is important in some way that the sort of regular workaday embedded work that you do at your job, in your community, with your family, you know, that's where the dividends in life come from and not through this sort of reality distortion field, even though it does transform certain people's lives uh, often for the worse. <laughs> Always reminded of that study, you know, of the um, the happiness study or the hedonic treadmill study, however you want to think about it, of the lottery winners versus the accident victims. In six months, you return to where you were. So in some sense, it just doesn't matter if you win Star Search. 
Ed McMahon hardest hit. <laughs> <laughs> Let's call it a wrap there. Thank you for listening to Act and Unwind. If you're listening to this podcast on our website, please look in the show notes for a link where you can subscribe directly to Act and Unwind or just search Act and Unwind on your favorite podcast app. Also, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, five-star reviews only, so that more people can find our show. Thanks to Dan, and a special thanks to Sarah Isger. For the Acton Institute, I'm Eric Cohn. We'll see you next week. Thank you.